At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 44, America Mafia Origins. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. This episode is made possible by our Patreon contributors and one-time contributions to the website. So if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter or follow us on social media for more Cold War content and upcoming show information, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. So you might be asking yourself, wait, Jeff, I thought this show was about the Cold War. Why are we talking about the mob? That is a good question. The reason I'm looking at the mafia in the United States is that the mafia was a major player in domestic American politics during the period of the Cold War. As you might recall, its name has been brought up a few times in reference to the CIA and in our episode about Hoover and will be coming up again in future episodes about the Kennedy administration. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations. Italian is not my native language. Moreover, understanding the mafia during this period gives us an understanding of government bureaucracy, society, and economic forces during the period. So I wanted to provide some background to who these people were and to dispel some mysteries and legends when it comes to the mob in American history. For one thing, the mob is either seen as a joke or some romanticized legend by Hollywood, which we'll see has a long history with the mob. Most people's understanding of the mob comes from TV and movies like The Sopranos, a popular TV show here in the U.S. that aired from 1999 to 2007, or movies like The Godfather and Casino. Historians have in general done a poor job incorporating the history of organized crime into American history. In high school and even college, there are barely any mentions of the mob's influence in American history textbooks, and you will be hard-pressed to find any seminar classes on its history. That being said, it's understandable why the mob is not a subject of historical study. For one, the story of the mob is one of corruption, and it reflects negatively on American history. Most would rather forget this chapter of American history. Second, it displays the weaknesses of democracy and democratic institutions. Nevertheless, to truly understand American politics in the mid-20th century, it's important to understand the influence of the mafia and organized crime in America during this period, so that when the mafia comes up in later episodes, it's understood in the proper context and not as some shadowy force or boogeyman. The story about the rise of the American mafia starts in the late 19th century and the rise of immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. Historically, the United States had been a nation of immigrants. As I'm sure you will all remember from your history books, initially America was populated by primarily English, Scottish, Dutch, and German settlers up to about 1790. There was also Africans who came to America starting in the 1600s, but they were kidnapped and forced into slavery. It's important to point out that they were brought to America against their will, unlike the vast majority of settlers from Europe, who by and large came voluntarily. 
even if they did come as indentured servants, the period of their slavery eventually ended in contrast to the Africans. 1790 to about 1830 saw very little immigration to the United States, but after 1830, immigration expanded once again as British, Irish, German, and Scandinavian immigrants immigrated to the United States in pursuit of cheap farmland. Between 1831 and 1840, about 600,000 people immigrated to the United States. By 1850, this number had reached 1.7 million. It should be noted that many Americans were opposed to immigration. Nativism took the form of political anti-Catholicism, directed mostly against the Irish as well as the Germans. It became important briefly in the mid-1850s in the guise of the Know-Nothing Party. By the 1880s, although people were still immigrating from Great Britain, Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavia, the majority were now coming from Eastern Europe, Southern Italy, and Greece. It's important to note of the millions of these people that immigrated, the vast majority became law-abiding American citizens, and less than a fraction of a percent went on to become members of organized crime. In the movies, the mafia is primarily portrayed as an Italian thing, but criminality then, as today, was a part of the human condition it was not exclusive to any race or ethnicity. The Jews, African Americans, and the Irish had their crime families and gangs as well. In the end, for complex reasons which we will explore in this episode, the Italians through the Mafia came to dominate the American underworld. Although it should be noted more Italian Americans joined law enforcement in the fight against crime than actually became criminals or joined the Mafia. The Mafioso primarily came from Sicily and southern Italy. Sicily, for over 2,000 years, had endured some type of tyranny and foreign occupation. From ancient times to the mid-19th century, the island was raided, invaded, and even at one point traded. In many respects, Sicily was cursed by its geography. In the center of the Mediterranean, it was a gateway to southern Italy and North Africa. It is one of the most conquered places in the world, witnessing an almost endless succession of invasions by the Phoenicians, Greeks, Etruscans, Carthaginians, Romans, Byzantines, Normans, Arabs, French, Spanish, Austrians, Italians, and an Anglo-American invasion in World War II. The western half of the island was extremely violent, where people lived short, brutish lives under oppressive and corrupt governments. Eastern Sicily was comparatively peaceful, but considerably violent by contemporary standards. In Palermo, in the western end of the island, the murder rate was 29 per 100,000 and as high as 44 per 100,000 in some places. In Messina, in the eastern half, the rate was only 8 in 100,000, close to the contemporary rate of New York City, which is 5 in 100,000. Sicilians survived these occupations by developing a culture rooted in contempt and suspicion of the government and strong ties of family allegiance. Without the benefit of strong and fair judicial institutions on the island to protect themselves and their property, Towns and villages formed strong clans, mainly in the countryside, and relied on compromise and vendetta to achieve justice. A mafioso did not turn to the police or get a lawyer to settle his disputes. He won respect by either being tough and being feared and settled his differences by fighting. The clans were called families, with the leader referred to as padroni or father. Therefore, these original mafia grew over hundreds of years from small guerrilla-like self-defense bands into greedy gangs whose basic principles and concepts would influence the rise of the American mafia. The mafia clans in Sicily, though in contrast to the American mafia, never functioned under a unified centralized command. Geography compounded many of these cultural and social influences. Mountains, isolated districts, and many dialects of Sicilian were spoken. Men from one region often looked at men from another region with suspicion. 
In the east, the soil was richer and its cities were more developed and peaceful, and landlords tended to live on their estates. In the west, up to two-thirds of the estates were owned by absentee landlords who often turned their management of their lands over to a third party. To keep order, they often hired thugs and bandits with sawed-off shotguns and knives. These men were often more than not ruthless and on occasion succeeded in dispossessing the absentee landlords of their property. The Mafia was also influenced by the Camonara, or a thieves' guild that had operated in southern Italy since 1800. The Neapolitan jails were a favorite recruiting spot for the Camonari. Many of the future rules and practices of the Mafia were drawn from them, like taking oaths and rules against sleeping with another member's wife. The Mafia and the Camorari had many similarities, like the importance of obeying the rules of the group, keeping its secrets, and turning over a portion of your earnings to the group. If a member broke these rules, he could expect to be murdered. When these rules and traditions spread to Sicily, they were not uniformly adopted and varied from region to region. In some areas, two men even had to fight to the death to be accepted. In others, there were no rules or rituals whatsoever. In 1860, Giuseppe Garibaldi arrived with his famed red shirts and liberated the island with the support of the Sicilian population, overthrowing the Spanish Bourbon king, the same royal family as Louis XVI that was deposed during the French Revolution. Like their cousins in France, they weren't much better running Sicily, and they were just as hated by the people. Nevertheless, despite the banishment of the king, little changed in Sicily. Most Sicilian peasants still lived in meager shacks and slums. Italian authorities didn't see them as the fellow Italians, but as Africans, and in many ways administered Sicily as if it was a colony. Other than the freedom that they had been promised, Sicilians found themselves with a new set of alien rulers. If anything, things became worse as a crime wave now swept the island. During this period, wealthy landlords were held hostage by the mafioso who forced them to pay protection fees for their property and to protect against abduction. The government vacillated between repressing the criminal elements and ignoring them. Oddly enough, the government in Rome in the 1870s enlisted the Mafia to help capture the most violent non-Mafia bandits and restore a semblance of order to the island. In exchange for their help, the Italian government agreed not to interfere with the Mafia's control of the island. The unification of Italy also led to the breakup of the old feudal estates on the island, and this coupled with Rome's assurances to not intervene in the island's domestic affairs allowed the mafioso to rule the island, becoming an extra-legal government, especially in the countryside and remote areas. Any legitimate business on the island was for the taking. All a mafioso had to do was to take it and monopolize it. An average Sicilian had no recourse. The Catholic Church also endorsed the Mafia's control of the island, thus giving them the more legitimacy as the Mafia protected the Church's various land holdings on the island. Italy was a democracy in theory, and Sicilian men had the right to vote for their representatives, but in practice the Mafia intimidated the population into electing their candidates, and those candidates represented the Mafia's interests, not the people of Sicily. Given the poverty of Sicily and southern Italy, the United States and its open-door immigration policy at the turn of the century made the U.S. a magnet for immigration from Italy. Between 1890 and 1920, an estimated 4 million Italians and Sicilians traveled to America. Of those, a few thousand were former criminals and minor mafioso seeking new opportunities or fleeing vendettas. None of the Sicilian families tried to establish a new branch in the United States. The mafioso and criminals that did arrive in America were trying to build something for themselves. The bosses back in Sicily were already rich. The mafioso in America were petty criminals who imitated the tactics and the lifestyle of the bosses back home, 
but were still more or less street thugs with ideas of grandeur. New Orleans was one of the earliest ports of call for Italian immigrants. Italian merchants had been traveling there since the 1850s. By 1890, more than 25,000 Italians lived there, and two Italian gangs fought for control of the port's business of loading and unloading ships. With its Catholic, French, and Spanish roots, New Orleans was very similar to southern Italy. Cities like New York, as the years passed, attracted the most Sicilian immigrants. In 1880, 20,000 Italians lived in New York. By 1900, that number grew to 250,000. By 1910, their numbers combined with the first-generation Italian-Americans grew to over half a million. Yet they were only the fourth-largest immigrant group in New York, trailing the Irish, Germans, and the Jews. In a metropolis where nearly three-quarters of the people were either immigrants or children of immigrants, New York, back then as it is still today, was the financial heart of the nation, the world's greatest seaport at the time. It was the principal port for goods between Europe and America. It was the most foreign of American cities, and yet, ironically, the cultural and intellectual center of the nation. The Sicilians settled around 106th and 116th streets along the East River, whereas the Neapolitans congregated on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and around Mulberry Street in Brooklyn. Americans called these places Little Italy's. The living conditions were horrid in one tenement block of 132 rooms. 1,324 immigrants lived, sleeping in bunk beds, often 10 or more people to a room. Slumlords loved Italians because they didn't complain and usually paid their rents. As workers, they often took the most menial jobs like collecting trash and didn't complain about the poor pay, as on average, a man off the boat made less than a dollar a day working a 10-hour day. The more established and fortunate immigrants that maybe knew a little English could make $2 a day working on construction sites. As you can imagine, there was little or no safety standards, and workers suffered from high injury rates. Most Italian immigrants, or about 40%, were single young men. They were generally used to warm Mediterranean climate and found New York's cold and dry climate claustrophobic. They liked to gamble and play cards, a pastime looked down upon by most of middle-class church-going Protestant America. Mafioso wannabes also immigrated to America. These thugs preyed not on Americans, but their own fellow Sicilians and Italians. Most Sicilians and Italians didn't speak English, and they were distrustful of the police for cultural and historical reasons we covered earlier, so they made for easy targets. As a result of this, many Italians carried knives for self-defense, and as a consequence, were seen as inherently violent and troublesome. I want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the costs of books, sources, and sound equipment for the podcast. If you like episodes like this, one which focus on American history or subjects not often covered in detail, like we do in the History of the Cold War podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level or for whatever amount you feel is appropriate. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative of the show, consider becoming a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. By 1920, Italian immigrants made up about 15% of the city's population, primarily located in three neighborhoods, Little Italy, East Harlem in Manhattan, and Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Italians weren't alone, though. The Irish comprised Manhattan's west side and the Jews the lower east side. Most of the criminals in these neighborhoods were either undisciplined street gangs or lone predators. Gangs and crimes were not new to America, though. The Browery Boys and the Dead Rabbits, notorious New York street gangs, dated back to the 1840s. Nevertheless, America was undertaking a social revolution unlike that tried in any other nation up to this point, Prohibition. 
Prohibition went into effect January 1920, making the manufacture and sales of alcohol illegal. The roots of Prohibition date back to the 19th century. Alcoholism during this period, as during our own time, was seen as a social ill. Progressives of the era attached the issue to workplace injury, domestic violence, and the reason many men left their families. It was believed that an end to alcohol consumption would bring about a more fair, upright, and just society. World War I also helped bring about Prohibition. Beer, a popular beverage with most Americans, was associated with Germans and Germany, so many Americans during the period gave up beer because of its German links. Prohibition was, in another way, a part of a culture war that was raging during the period. Now, it's important to note that Americans during this era didn't understand it that way. I think for many people today, we would see the conflicts and tensions of Prohibition in the era as not too dissimilar to the issues and arguments of our own current period around drug use, immigration, crime, and gangs. The nation during the period was deeply divided between the predominantly Protestant Christian center and countryside of the nation, whose ancestors were from the first wave of northern European immigration and from those in the big cities along the eastern seaboard, many of whom were immigrants coming from eastern and southern Europe. The apprehension of the period had been growing as the complexion of the nation was changing. Prohibition of the period was seen by some as an attempt to preserve the nation's Anglo-Saxon character from the influx of foreign peoples and cultures. In the racism of the era, these immigrants were seen as lazy, violent, and often alcoholic, it was felt that for the nation to survive, these people would have to be reformed and made into Americans, and many saw prohibition as a big step towards accomplishing this task. It's important to remember that many western states and, c- and counties had already gone dry. Kansas had went dry in 1870, and by 1914, eight more states had joined them, meaning the sale and distribution of alcohol was already illegal in many central states versus immigrant communities from Europe where alcohol still played a large role in their lives. For Italians, wine was an important part of many meals. Irish had their pubs, and to the Germans, beer was an important social drink. Thus, the law fell disproportionately on the immigrant communities in America's major cities versus Americans in more rural communities. Overnight, though, in apartments and basements and sheds, primitive stills or distilleries were cooking up illegal moonshine, with production primarily based in the ethnic ghettos of the eastern cities along the seaboard. The mayor of New York, LaGuardia, estimated it would require 250,000 cops to enforce prohibition in New York alone. Congress entrusted the enforcement of prohibition to a new prohibition bureau with a mere force of 1,500 agents for the entire country. To make matters worse, agents were hired not for their police experience or abilities. Connections counted for everything, and training uh, for the job was non-existent. With the right connections, you could be hired as an agent in a matter of days. The pay was also very low, at $2,300 a year, which left them susceptible to bribery. A corrupt agent in New York could make up to $50,000 a year in bribes. Even in less lucrative areas, an agent could make a small fortune from bribes after a few years on the job. Indeed, bribe-taking became the rule, not the exception. Between 1920 and 1931, some 1,600 agents were fired and 257 were prosecuted as criminals. It wasn't just the immigrant communities that violated the law either. College students and owners of speakeasies contributed to a culture of lawlessness. Even the Attorney General, the President, and Congress openly flaunted the law, drinking in the White House and government offices in the cloakroom of the Senate. Some members of the Senate appeared visibly intoxicated on the Senate floor. Throughout America, many didn't take prohibition seriously, like laws against prostitution or polygamy, which had been in place amongst Western communities for hundreds of years. 
Prohibition was a new law, and the vast majority of Americans remembered the time before Prohibition. Alcohol had been a part of people's daily lives. Violating the law or ignoring it was seen by many as good-natured sport and not a stigma or a real crime. Meanwhile, events in Sicily would lead to more Italian mafioso to flee Italy and come to America. In 1922, Mussolini and his black shirts came to power, and they had no appetite for the mafia. Unlike Italian democratic governments, they wouldn't tolerate a shadowy authority running the island or any contenders for, to the control of Italian society. Mussolini used extensive torture and imprisonment to break down the mob, forcing hundreds of members to flee to America. As a partial response, in 1924, the U.S. passed the National Origins Act, which virtually halted immigration from Italy and ended unlimited entry into the United States. Undeterred by immigration restrictions, many of these mafioso portrayed themselves as political victims of fascism. Many that did make it to America quickly found their way to New York and started a new life of crime. Encouraged by the lax enforcement of the law and the high demand amongst most Americans for alcohol, the Sicilian, Jewish, and Irish bootleggers abandoned the primitive rock gut and developed more sophisticated and profitable techniques like smuggling in liquor from Britain and Canada or opening up their own covert breweries. The profits from this smuggling and production were enormous. One barrel of beer cost $5 to produce and sold for $36 to a speakeasy. That's tax-free, mind you, as well. The profits from whiskey and other hard spirits was even higher. In the beginning, it wasn't clear that the Italians would emerge as rulers of the criminal underworld. The Irish had strong political connections that the Italians lacked. The New York Police Department was primarily Irish, and they looked the other way with Irish bootleggers. The Jews had just as many people as the Italians living in New York and could be just as violent. What the Italians eventually had that the Jews and Irish didn't was organization and discipline. The Italians were also much more businesslike in their approach to problems and less violent in some ways versus the other ethnic gangs of the period. Their leaders could put aside petty squabbles and work with other families and operated from a principle of opportunity versus scarcity. The families in New York saw more opportunity in operating with Chicago versus fighting them. They looked to end wasteful competition and instead monopolize and maximize profit. Thus, while prohibition was a lucky break for all criminals of the period, it was the Italian mafia that not only retained its wealth, but expanded it after Prohibition. The Italian gangs were much more regimented. Uh, joining an Italian mafia or family was like joining a small army with a clear chain of command. Other gangs like those of the Jews and Irish were much more focused around individuals and friendships like a club with a leader. When those leaders were imprisoned or killed, the groups often fell apart. In contrast, Italian mafias continued to function even with the loss of a leader. New York's largest gang in the mid-1920s was an Italian mafia run by Joe Masseria out of East Harlem. Masseria's gang was known for its violence as they had killed some 30 opponents in battles over bootlegging and illegal gambling. Joe was middle-aged, short, and an obese Sicilian immigrant. He's said to have eaten several meals a day by eating three plates of pasta in a single sitting. Behind his back, he was known as Joe the Glutton. Masseria had a good eye for talent, though, as he recruited Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and Lucchese, otherwise known as Tommy Three Fingers Brown. All these men would be major figures, as we will see, in shaping the rise of the mafia in America. The other major Italian mob in town was run by Salvatore Maranzano, an illegal immigrant that had fled Mussolini's persecution in Sicily. Maranzano was in his early 40s. He built a major whiskey still in Pennsylvania and upstate New York. He also recruited future mob boss Joe Bonono. 
Unlike Masseria, Maranzano fancied himself a sophisticated, educated European. He spoke limited English, but claimed that he spoke Greek and Latin, and modeled himself on his hero, Julius Caesar. In 1930, Masseria demanded that Maranzano pay him 10000 in tribute and recognize him as the boss of all New York. Unsurprisingly, Maranzano refused to bend the knee, igniting a war across New York City. As casualties mounted, each side sought reinforcements from the other New York gangs and from mafioso in other cities. A young 29-year-old Lucky Luciano worried that the shootouts and all the bloodshed were bad for business. All the murders and deaths drew attention to their operations and compelled the police to launch investigations that threatened business operations. Before the war even started, Luciano had become increasingly frustrated by Masseria's refusal to modernize. He didn't want to be like the Dons back in Sicily. Luciano saw prohibition as a business opportunity. As such, he modeled his behavior on other American businessmen of the period like Rockefeller or Vanderbilt. He wanted to eliminate the violence between the Italian gangs and wanted to work with the Jews and the Irish to maximize profits. Additionally, Luciano wanted to move beyond prohibition into labor racketeering, gambling, and prostitution, which would require the cooperation of the Jews and the Irish. The distrustful and egotistical Masseria couldn't work with other Sicilians, let alone the Jews or Irish, and vetoed any deals with them. Luciano, like many of the gangsters of his generation, were not truly Sicilian like the older generation. They had either been born in America or had immigrated to America as children. English was their first language, and they grew increasingly contemptuous of the archaic methods and beliefs of the senior mafioso. Luciano had come to America as a boy from the city of Palermo. He dropped out of school at 14, and by the time he was 24, he had an arrest record of armed robbery, gun possession, assault, grand larceny, gambling, and possession of narcotics. Remarkably, most of these charges were dropped, and except for an 18-month sentence, Luciano served very little time in jail. Before joining Masseria's gang, Luciano had made alliances in the Jewish community, which would endure his entire life, most notably Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. He also had for a time worked with the famous Jewish mobster Arnold Rothstein, who was skilled in bootlegging, labor rocketeering, stock fraud, stolen diamonds, bonds, gambling, and narcotics trafficking. He was most famously remembered for fixing the 1919 Baseball World Series. After 18 months of war and no end in sight, Luciano decided to overthrow Masseria. Luciano met with Maranzano secretly and offered to end the bloodshed by assassinating Masseria and assume control of his family. In exchange, Maranzano would agree to end the war and recognize Luciano as an equal boss. Luciano arranged a lavish card game and lobster lunch for Masseria on Coney Island. Before dessert arrived, Luciano ducked out to go to the bathroom. Mysteriously as well, Masseria's four bodyguards disappeared. Suddenly, four men appeared and riddled his body with gunfire. Maranzano was hailed as a conquering hero and gave his blessing to Luciano's leadership of the old Masseria family. The peace was short-lived, though, as Maranzano quickly named himself boss of bosses and the leader of all organized crime throughout the nation. He reorganized the mob along the lines of the old Roman legions. The boss was the unquestionable head of the family. He was assisted by an underboss. Crews or street units would typically consist of 10 men. Each crew was led by a captain or capo appointed by the boss. Maranzano also mandated that the old mafia rules of Sicily be imposed on the American mafias. All of this naturally incensed Luciano. Maranzano was in the end even more backward thinking than Masseria. Not only had Maranzano rigged on his deal for equality in New York, but he was attempting to control organized crime throughout the nation.
Legend has it that Luciano learned that Maranzano had contracted a hit on him with the Irish. So Luciano had a, no choice but to kill Maranzano. He learned that Maranzano was expecting to get raided by the IRS at their Grand Central office. None of Maranzano's men were armed in anticipation of the raid. Seizing on the opportunity, Luciano called on his Jewish contacts to storm the office pretending to be the IRS. And this way, they wouldn't be recognized as Maranzano's bodyguards knew most of Luciano's men. As planned, they raided Maranzano's office and lined his men up against the wall. Maranzano was asked to step into his office and by one of the imposters and shot a few moments later. Joe Bonono, Maranzano's assistant boss and right-hand man, decided not to avenge his boss's death. He agreed with Luciano that Maranzano's methods and thinking was obsolete. He was unwilling to adapt to the culture and methods of the new American mafia. Despite being in America for six years, he could barely speak English and couldn't communicate with the younger criminals. With the war over, Luciano and Bonono held a conclave with the heads of the other three families in New York. These five families that had grown out of the turbulent 1920s would survive under various names and leaders into the 21st century. No other American city would have more than one mafia family, nor would any other family come close to matching the size, wealth, and power and influence of any of the New York families. The five families agreed to travel to Chicago for a national conference with Al Capone, Chicago's Italian mob boss, and more than 20 other mafia factions in the country. Luciano laid out his concept for avoiding conflict between the different families. Maranzano's organization, which was barred from the old Roman legions, was kept with one change. Besides the underboss, every family would have a consigliere, a skilled counselor or diplomat to iron out problems inside the family and to resolve feuds with other families. Membership in a family was a lifetime commitment. There was no retirement. The only way you got out was in a box. You'd become a member of the family, though you had to be a full Italian. Being 50% would still disqualify you. Both parents had to be 100% Italian. The size of the family was fixed to the number of made men they had at the time of the meeting, with replacements being made only for dead members. Freezing the size of each family was intended to prevent expansion and igniting territory wars. Limiting membership was also seen as a method of selecting the best and most competent members. Only mafioso could kill mafioso, and while they could kill outsiders, other criminals would face death for even threatening a made man. Killing police or law enforcement was against the rules and had to be green-lighted by the commission. A commission was established or a national board of directors that would establish general policies and regulations for all the families in the country and would settle any territorial disputes. The commission would serve as the vital link between the families throughout the nation, ensuring cooperation, harmony, and joint criminal ventures. Luciano gave representation on the commission of all the five families of New York, Chicago, and Buffalo, with the provision that more could be added if needed. Chicago was added as a member as it was the strongest mafia family outside of New York, and Buffalo's mafia was highly respected and feared for its brutality and its strong ties to mafia in the Midwest and Canada. Each family on the commission would have one vote, and all decisions would be a majority decision. The commission agreed to meet every five years to fraternize and review mutual concerns. Despite these rules, there were differences between the families. Joe Bonono, who replaced Maranzano as the head of his family, only agreed to induct Sicilians into his family, meaning even if you were from southern Italy, you couldn't be a member. Moreover, none of these families referred to themselves as the Mafia. They all had their own names. The New York families called themselves Costa Nostra, the mafia codename used back in Sicily. Chicago called itself the Outfit. 
Buffalo the Arm, others, especially in New England, chose to call themselves The Office. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. Make sure to stay tuned for our next episode as we will explore further the mob's subsequent rise to power and its influence on American politics in the early Cold War. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor but would like to still help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out our pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. While there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.